Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number five, the book of Matthew, chapter two continued. We spent the bulk of our previous time together on the birth story of our Lord and Savior as we find it in the book of Matthew. Now, it's the only place in the New Testament that we're going to hear about the Magi and the Star of Bethlehem. Now, we've spent some time understanding who the Magi were, what their profession actually was, and what it was that they saw that caused them to go on this long journey to Judea in search of a newborn king. Now, we're going to briefly review that. The Magi were astrologers. Now, we must not picture in our minds modern astrologers who basically produce horoscopes. Rather, the Magi were a combination of astronomers and seers. They were experts in understanding the heavens, in tracking and predicting the movement of stars and planets. And then they would use these objects, positions in the sky, as omens and portents for the purpose of interpreting the present and for foretelling the future. These were not the ancient Babylonian brand of astrologers because that practice had died out three centuries earlier. Rather, they were Hellenistic astrologers. That is, they were a brand, they represent a brand of astrology um, that was the product of a Greco Roman culture and so was seen throughout the Roman Empire as valid and valuable, except for the Jews. They didn't practice it, they didn't accept it. Now, even though the Jews did not embrace the concept of the, the zodiac or employ astrologers to tell them the future, they did, of course, pay attention to the sky, because all human beings did. They were aware of the several constellations formed by patterns of stars. The book of Job is considered by most scholars to be the oldest book in the Bible, written well before the time of Moses in the Torah. In it, we find this interesting statement in which Job is describing the greatness of God. In Job 9, verses 8 through 10, he says, He, God, alone, spreads out the sky and walks on the waves in the sea. He made the great bear, Orion, the Pleiades, and the hidden constellations of the south. He does great unsearchable things, wonders beyond counting. The great bear and Orion are constellations. The Pleiades, also known as the Seven Sisters, 
This is a star cluster that helps to form the constellation Taurus. Job gives God credit for forming these stars into patterns. So even in Job's day, these stars and constellations were not only observed, they were named. Now we spent half the the final half anyway of our time together last week discussing the star of Bethlehem that appeared in the sky and what it might have been. Unfortunately, to explore this phenomenon we have to get a little bit technical, but I think you're going to find it worth the effort. Some theologians believe that the star was a comet. Others think it was a supernova. Another group surmises it was a planetary conjunction. We examined each of these last week and found that none of these of themselves would have alerted the Magi that a new king of the Jews had been born. Now that falls in line with the thinking of many believers that the star was simply a divine miracle. Now we're going to continue the pursuit of the nature of this star as we continue uh, with today's lesson. Part of what we're dealing with is that when we compare the words of Matthew's Gospel to what has become Christian tradition and the unquestionable belief by millions of believers, we find some inconsistencies. For instance, the birth star, as you see pictured here, is usually pictured in illustrations as this unusually large, bright star that just suddenly appears out of nowhere. But yet, nowhere does Matthew suggest such a thing. In Matthew, again the only place in the New Testament where this star is mentioned, it is made clear, and this is the really interesting part to me, the only people who had any knowledge of a special star announcing a newborn king of the Jews were the pagan magi. That's kind of ironic, isn't it? The Jews seem to be completely unaware of it. Even King Herod knew nothing of it. And this paranoid man was always on high alert for any sign of anyone that might represent the slightest threat to his throne. We read in Luke's Gospel that it was not the star that illuminated the place of Christ's birth, as is usually depicted. Rather, it was something else. In Luke 2, 8-11, In the countryside nearby were some shepherds spending the night in the fields guarding their flocks. When an angel of Adonai appeared to them, and the Shekinah of Adonai, the glory of God, shone all around them. They were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, because I am here announcing to you good news that will bring great joy to all the people. This very day in the town of David there was born for you a Deliverer who is the Messiah, the Lord. So it was the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah that accompanied an angel that illuminated the area 
that informed the shepherds of the birth of the Messiah. It was not a star. So what was the sign of how these shepherds, these Jewish shepherds, would know which child was this long-awaited deliverer? Luke 2.12 Here's how you'll know. <laughs> you will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a feeding trough, a manger. So the sign that this was the Messiah was where the baby was located and that he'd be lying in a feeding trough. That was the sign. It had nothing to do with a star. And interestingly, it was not a newborn king that the Jews were to be looking for, but rather they were to be looking for their deliverer. Here's where things begin to get dicey. After visiting Herod and the Magi's being urged by him to go find this newborn king of the Jews, and then of course to let him know right away, they continued on with their journey. And here's how Matthew describes that. In Matthew 2, 9 through 10, after they had listened to the king, they went away. And the star which they had seen in the east went in front of them until it came and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. A plain reading of these two verses seems to say that this special star that the Magi first saw, which told them that a new king of the Jews had been born in Judea, actually moved. And it led them to where the child was. Then it stopped, it hovered over the place where Yosef, Miriam, and Yeshua were. This, of course, defies any natural explanation, so it's no wonder that much of Christianity sees this star as a miracle of God, and it may well be that it was. However, there's another explanation that has to be considered, because Matthew in no way implies that the star was miraculous or supernatural. Various constellations of the zodiac were thought by the Magi to represent different regions of the known world. The constellation Aries, the ram, was representative of the region under the control of Herod at this time, which centered around Judea. So Aries was where these astrologers would have looked for portents about Herod's kingdom. Not somewhere else. Vetus Valens of Antioch, as well as Ptolemy, recorded that Herod's kingdom was ruled by the zodiac sign of Aries. Now, before we continue concerning the star, I want to add one more piece of information. In Luke 1 5, we're told this. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a Kohen, a priest, named Zechariah, 
who belonged to the Avia division. His wife was a descendant of Aaron. Her name was Elisheva, Elizabeth. This is the beginning of the birth story of John the Baptist. And we're told this took place during King Herod's reign, meaning it had to have happened before 4 BC when Herod died. Luke 1.36 puts Yeshua's birth about 15 months following the conception of John the Baptist. We also know that Herod was still living and ruling after Christ was born. Now this is becoming more and more agreed upon by biblical scholars that 6 BC, 6 BC is a very good candidate for the year of Messiah's birth. Well, at this point, the understanding of the zodiac and the positions of planets and stars within each sign of the zodiac enters greatly into the matter of what the Magi were looking for as a portent. It's well beyond our scope to get into too much detail about this. So I'll just present you with some interesting bottom line facts. Where stars and planets appear within a section of the, the sky that represents the sign of a certain region on Earth had very much to do with what omen or portent was being signaled. And of the many things that these ancient Hellenistic astrologers were looking for was for the sign of a king dying or a king being born. Since kings were very powerful and they greatly affected matters of importance. The position of the planets in the zodiac had everything to do with determining a portent about a king. To quote Michael Molnar, thus for a horoscope to be undeniably suited for a royal birth, it must have a strong set of conditions for attendance. In other words, the Magi would have been looking for something very specific, very technical about those tiny dots of light in the sky that only they and other members of their profession would have known to look for. As the famous astronomer Kepler pointed out about 1600 AD, there had indeed been a somewhat rare, about every 60 years, conjunction of planets that occurred in 6 BC, the likely year that Christ was born. Using modern mathematical and astronomical techniques, Scientists have determined that precisely on March the 20th, 6 BC, a special conjunction of planets and the movement of both the Moon and the planet Jupiter occurred within the zodiac sign of Aries, the sign for the region of Judea. Might this have been what the Magi saw 
that alerted them to the birth of a new king of the Jews. It certainly fits the scenario quite well. More importantly, it fits within the mindset of pagan astrologers, the Magi who lived in the first century. But now, what to make of the statements of Matthew about this mysterious movement of the Star of Bethlehem? The first thing we must do is attempt to get outside our modern Western thinking. We have to adopt the mindset and try to grasp the vocabulary of Greek astrologers in the first century, which is also the time at which the book of Matthew was being written. Being written by a man who had no choice but to consult with experts, eyewitnesses, look up written records in order to gather these many details contained in his gospel account that we're studying today. Verse 2 of the second chapter of Matthew has the Magi asking the people of Jerusalem this question. They asked the people of Jerusalem, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. What is the meaning of the description of where it is that they first saw the star? Does it mean the Magi were located in the east where they resided when they saw it? See, the term in the east is taken from the Greek, and the literal English translation of it is indeed in the east. But what it sounds like to us is not what it meant to these ancient astrologers. For them, in the East is a technical astrological term that means at the rising. In fact, in recognition of this, some Bible translations are now being edited to say at the rising instead of in the East. This term is referring to a planet that rises over the eastern horizon early in the morning before the sun appears. What the Magi saw was a, what we would call a morning star. A few verses later, in Matthew 2 we read, in uh, verse 9, After they had listened to the king, they went away. And the star which they had seen in the east went in front of them until it came and it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, went in front or went before are also good literal translations, but they're good literal translations of astrological terms. The technical term is progesis. And while it means in layman's terms, our terms, to go before, in astrological practice, it means to go in the same direction as the sky moves. That's what it means. The ancient Greeks thought that the regular direction in which a planet moves 
is the same as the direction that the overall sky moves. Now, for those of us who live in the 21st century, the idea that the sky moves is rather amusing. But remember that we're talking about people who had an, several incorrect views about the structure of our solar system. They believed the sun revolved around the earth. They believed the earth was flat and had four corners. So the term stopped over or stood over that seems to describe the birth star becoming stationary over the place where Christ was born also has a slightly different meaning in astrology. According to Ptolemy, it means above in the sky. So allow me to rephrase the meaning of Matthew 2.9 into its astrological meaning to reveal what this verse seems to be telling us. After they had listened to the king, they went away. And the star which they had seen at the rising, which went in the same direction as the sky moves, came and was above the sky where the child was. That's what it meant to the Magi. That's what it meant to any Greek astrologer in that day. In the end, what we have in Matthew regarding the star of Bethlehem is that either it was a celestial event that signaled a portent that appeared in the zodiac sign of the ram, Aries, which only the highly trained Magi would have recognized, a very subtle sign that occurs about every 60 years, one that would indeed have been marked by a morning star that rises in the east and then moves its position across the sky and then at some point appears to stop before it makes a looping turn. Or we have a miracle of God. I can't say with certainty which one of it was. But as we ponder this event, we also need to factor into our thinking that the birth star was not a sign that God gave to the Jews. Rather, it was a celestial sign meant for who? The Magi, the pagan astrologers. As Luke chapter 2 explains, the sign that God provided for the Jews was that they were to look in Bethlehem for a baby that was laid in a feeding trough. That was their sign. I mean, would God actually give pagan astrologers a sign, any sign, of the birth of a divine Jewish Messiah? You know, we find God interfacing with pagans on a number of occasions in, in the Bible. And one of the more famous encounters involved the pagan Magi Balaam in the book of Numbers, which we talked about in a previous lesson and may be prophetically connected to the birth of Christ. In Matthew 2.11, 
When the Magi finally found the child, it says, upon entering the house, they saw the child with his mother Miriam. They prostrated themselves and they worshipped him. Then they opened their bags and presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now the Magi worshipped the child as they would any king. Remember, the Magi were not looking for a savior. They were not looking for a god. What were they looking for? A newborn king of Judea. Prostrating oneself before a king was usual and customary. Get in big trouble if you didn't. Presenting expensive gifts when visiting a king was usual and customary, especially when you were a first-time foreign visitor. My opinion on the matter is this. God in His amazing providence timed the birth of His Son to coincide with a sign that ancient pagan astrologers were looking for. A sign that the Jews had no knowledge of. A sign so subtle the Jews never noticed it because they would have no reason to notice it. Gentile pagans worshipped Miriam's child as a king with no understanding that he, is, he was Israel's divine Messiah. At the same time, God gave His chosen people a, a miraculous announcement of the arrival of their Messiah as a human baby by means of an angel and the appearance of the glory of God in the night sky over Bethlehem. And B, He also gave them a sign in order for them to positively identify this child by saying He'd be the one laying a feeding trough in Bethlehem. So God introduced His Son to the world as both King and Messiah. King to the pagans, Messiah to the Jews. And He did it in ways that each could identify with, using means that each could accept. Let's keep that in mind as we carry out our commission to introduce Jesus Christ to our unbelieving friends and family. Okay, let's return from our extensive detour and put this narrative of Matthew chapter 2 together. Several pieces of information are given to us in rapid fashion in the first verse. First, the name of the child, the deliverer, is given. It is Yeshua. Second, the place of his birth is provided. It is in Bethlehem of Judea. Now there were a number of Bethlehems in the Holy Land. So the addition of the words of Judea were necessary. Third, Christ's birth occurred, we're told, during the reign of King Herod, meaning it had to have happened before 4 BC 
and the most likely year for Yeshua's birth is probably 6 BC. Fourth, Magi from a foreign land came to Jerusalem looking for this new King of the Jews. Why did they come to Jerusalem? Because it was the seat of government in Judea. So it seemed logical, at least to them, that this was where a new king would be found, right? But when they asked the local townspeople where this new king was, they were not asking in terms of what city, what town he might be in. Rather, they fully expected him to be somewhere within the city of Jerusalem. Turns out, they were in the wrong place. Because we've already been told he was born in Bethlehem, but this is something they didn't yet know. Well, when in verse 2 the Magi say they have seen his star, it means they have identified an astrological portent that indicates a king has been born in the region of Judea. Now, most Bibles uh, have it that they say the reason they came was to worship him. That's not wrong. At least the problem is, to the Western mind, worship is reserved for deities. But from an old English standpoint, worship means to pay homage, usually to a king or an aristocrat. Therefore, some Bible translations, even, even the uh, New American Standard, now uses the word homage instead of worship. Why? Because this projects a much more correct image to we moderns, because what the Magi intended was in no way religious. Verse 3 says, it didn't take long for Herod to hear about these Magi asking the townspeople, about a new king of the Jews. I mean, naturally this caught his attention. Townspeople knew full well that this homicidal, brutal Herod wasn't going to take this news lightly, so everyone got upset right along with him. Herod did what any experienced king would have done. He called for his experts to come and give him counsel on the matter. We are told that the chief priests, plural, came, so did the scribes of the people, or as the complete Jewish Bible has it, the Torah teachers. We discussed in the introduction to Matthew that at this time in history, the Jews operated under a dual religious system consisting of the temple and the synagogue. These institutions were completely separate, they were run for different purposes by different sets of authorities. The Levite priests, ruled the temple, the scribes, who were not Levites, ruled the synagogues. There was one temple, but man, there was scores and scores of synagogues. As a matter of fact, the Talmud says that in Jerusalem there were 400 synagogues. Also notice that when the chief priests of the temple were summoned, this was not speaking of the high priest, rather it was talking about the most senior of the regular priests. Herod wanted to know exactly where this Messiah was to be born, and he seemed to understand that since the advent 
of the Messiah was prophesied, such information would be found somewhere in Holy Scripture. So without hesitation, because those who knew Scripture knew the answer, the priest and the scribe said it was to be in Bethlehem of Judea because the prophet had recorded it. The prophet they were speaking of is Micah. And what they quote is essentially Micah 5.1 or 5.2, depending on which Bible version you're using. But you, Beit Lechem, Bethlehem, near Ephrat, so small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come forth to me the future ruler of Israel, whose origins are far in the past, back in ancient times. So in the mid-700s BC, time of Micah, it was foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But now, around 5 BC, Herod wanted to know when these Magi first saw this star that sent them on this journey, because from this he could judge the child's current age, which would be useful in identifying him. Now please note that Herod had no doubt these Magi were correct. Herod was a fully Hellenistic king, so he bought into pagan astrology. We're not told how the angel, uh, the angel, the Magi responded to him, only that Herod bade them go to Bethlehem, find this new king, and once they did, report it back to Herod so that he too, it says, might go and pay homage to him. Yeah, right. The Magi were intelligent men. They understood that King Herod was not about to go and pay homage to his potential replacement. The Magi, of course, behaved as though they were obeying Herod and they set out towards Bethlehem. We're told that the star led them there, but as we discussed earlier, that's a misunderstanding of terminology. First of all, think about this. For those of you that have been there especially, and I know many of you have because I took you, they didn't need to be led to Bethlehem. The road to Bethlehem was well marked, well traveled, and it was no more than a half day's walk from where they were. Second of all, Bethlehem was a small place. And the process of finding the Christ child wouldn't have been difficult. Nonetheless, they were excited beyond measure that the star that it had indeed given them the correct information. And inside this house, they found Miriam and her child, the newborn king of the Jews, this new king of Judea. Now it's become Christian tradition that Miriam gave birth to Yeshua not in a house or an inn, but rather in something like a barn or a cave. Verse 11 specifically says, house. It simply cannot be translated any other way. This tradition of a cave or a barn comes from the mention 
of the child being laid in an animal feeding trough. But in that era, and it's still that way in parts of the Middle East now, animals are brought in at night to a courtyard that's just part of the residence. And the residents sleep right next to the animals. The purpose is to protect these valuable animals from predators and from thieves. So naturally there was a manger, a feeding trough, inside the courtyard. No doubt where the Holy Family stayed was very lowly. It wasn't usual to put a child at a feeding trough as a bed. According to Matthew, it was a house, and I feel certain that it was. Well, the Magi paid homage to the child king, giving him gifts of great value. Now, I wonder, how old might this child have been by the time the Magi found him? You know, it's really difficult to ascertain. The description seems to be of an infant. Yet the timing says the child might have been a year old, maybe more. So we're just going to have to leave that an open question. Now I'm going to repeat what I said earlier. To the Magi's minds, they were not worshiping this child from the religious sense even though Christian tradition seems to make it so. Rather, they were paying the typical homage due to any king, honoring a baby if it was born regally was not at all unusual. After paying homage, the Magi began their long journey back to the homeland, it's not stated where that is. But they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. As seers, they were sensitive to dreams and divisions. Do they really have a dream? Or was it really their instincts that told them that Herod was obviously up to no good? In verse 13, the Magi now completely exit our story. But the issue of Herod's clearly murderous intent towards this child remains. We're told that an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph to warn him to take his family and flee to Egypt because Herod wants to harm this child. Now there's disagreement among Bible versions about whether this is the angel of the Lord or he's a, an angel of the Lord. The first suggestion makes this a unique angel, maybe even the Lord Himself. The second suggestion, an angel, makes this simply an unidentified angel of which there were apparently others like Him. I opt for an angel for a couple of reasons. First of all, when we find the phrase, the angel of the Lord in the Bible, invariably the original language word actually isn't Lord. It's Jehovah. It's God's name. That's what's there. However, here, Lord means Lord. God's name isn't used. There is only one angel of the Lord, angel of Jehovah, because this angel is but another manifestation of God. Yet, a complication is that we have this angel speaking in the first person. He uses the term I. 
when he says go to Egypt and stay there and I'll tell you when to return. Second of all, usually when the first person is used by an angel described as the angel of the Lord, that angel is God. However, here the wording is such that it could be that God will just again send this particular angel to Joseph in Egypt. I'm going to ruin the ending, but that is actually the case, we find out later. Spoiler alert. Once it was safe for them to go home. And that angel's aware of this fact. However, the unusual way Matthew phrases this leaves a lot of room for doubt. Now, verse 14 explains that Joseph obeyed the angel in his dream. Then, verse 15 presents us with a pretty sticky problem. The angel says that the overriding reason that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus were to go to Egypt was so that the prophecy of, out of Egypt I called my son, would be fulfilled. This prophecy is taken from Hosea 11.1. Now, context is everything in the Bible. So now, listen to the entire verse of Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Hmm. So Matthew is applying to Yeshua a prophecy that specifically named Israel as the child that God calls my son. So the original context in Hosea 11.1 is the exodus of Israel from Egypt as led by Moses. Israel is called God's son as far back as Exodus 4.22, going so far as God insisting that Israel is his firstborn son. So is it right of Matthew to make such application by switching the subject of the prophecy from Israel to the Messiah? It seems much like allegory for him to do so rather than revealing straightforward biblical history and truth. Now, while we could camp here for quite a while, I'm going to hurry us through it. Again, remembering that Matthew is a well-educated Jewish believer who, as we're going to see as we move through all these chapters, is equally knowledgeable with the biblical Torah as he is with Jewish tradition, he is likely employing what is called the Remez method of Bible interpretation. I've taught this before, but briefly. There were four standard and accepted means of interpreting the Bible among the Jews of Christ's era, and it has more or less remained so to this day. There is Pshat, that means simple. That is, it is the plain, literal sense of the biblical words. The second is remes, that means hint. That is, the biblical passage hints at a truth a little deeper than what we would read only in the Peshat, the simple literal sense. The third is drash, 
from whom we get the Hebrew word midrash. It allows a person to make application of what is said in scriptures in a way similar to, but not quite the same as, allegory. That is, drash depends on God guiding the human interpreter to truths not necessarily directly stated by the biblical words. The Apostle Paul, by the way, was a master at drash. Okay. Fourth is called sod, meaning secret. Okay. It is the mysterious meaning behind the plain meaning. Gematria, the use of numbers, to reveal less apparent truth is part of sod. So, might Matthew be making use of one of these four methods when he connects Hosea's prophecy about Israel to Christ? Probably. I would speculate that he's employing the Ramez method of interpretation. Okay, that is, Hosea 11.1 speaks directly of Israel as God's son that he calls out of Egypt, but in fact, it also hints at a prophetic future calling his son Yeshua out of Egypt. Now, you know, such a concept makes a direct and intimate link between Israel as God's Son and the Messiah as God's Son. Christ and Israel are as one. Yeshua represents the ideal Israel. This idea is sprinkled throughout the prophets, and especially in Isaiah 49, if you'd like to go read it. Jot that down. Go read Isaiah 49, you'll see what I'm talking about. Essentially, we have Jesus repeating Israel's experience by being called by God the Father to come out of Egypt. Well, Herod died in 4 BC, so we can assume that it was in that same year when the angel returned to Joseph and told him his family could now safely return to the Holy Land. They probably were in Egypt for around a year. However, shortly before his death, Herod went into this paranoid rage when he realized the Magi had tricked him. They had gone to Bethlehem as instructed, but then they went home without returning to him with the information he had sought. In response, Herod ordered all the children, probably only the males, two years of age and under, who lived in Bethlehem and areas nearby, to be slaughtered. Apparently, in their visit to Herod, the Magi had told him when it was that they first saw the star. However, their seeing the star didn't necessarily mean to him that it represented the specific date the child was born. It could have been a little earlier, it could have been a little later. Since he wasn't certain of the date, he just went ahead and killed a whole wide range of ages the children who were two years old and younger. 
So, think about the out of Egypt deal for a moment. Here we see this continuing connection with Egypt. Because Pharaoh did something very similar to the Israelite children 1400 years earlier. Listen to Exodus 1 15 through 22. Moreover, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was called Shifra, the other Puah. When you attend the Hebrew women and see them giving birth, you said, If it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. However, the midwives were God fearing women. So they didn't do as the king of Egypt ordered, but they let the boys live. The king of Egypt summoned the midwives and demanded of them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, It's because the Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. They go into labor and give birth before the midwife can arrive. Uh huh. Therefore, God prospered the midwives. The people continue to multiply, grow very powerful. Indeed, because the midwives feared God, He made them founders of families. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people. Every boy that's born, throw them in the river, but let all the girls live. We're going to close for today. And we'll pick up Matthew chapter 2 next week and then move on in to chapter 3.